0: Welcome to the Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Today's topic is very exciting because it focuses on a phenomena happening all around the world and consequently affects millions of people. This topic will mainly focus on the engineering and physical phenomena, but causation of this can reflect political decision-making and greatly affect our society and environment that we live in. Rightfully, this episode is called Sinking Cities. So we plan to explain the who, what, where, and why this is happening, and uncover where some of these sinking cities are. And finally, we'll round out the episode providing engineering solutions and mitigation tactics to shake this issue. Now, I am excited to announce that I brought on the perfect spokesperson for this particular topic, and that is Sebastian Lobo Guerrero. Sebastian is a Ph.D. and professionally licensed geotechnical engineer and lab manager at Aegis Incorporated. He has 19 years of experience and specializes in foundations, earth retaining structures, landslide stability, ground improvement, and rockfall catchment systems. His accolades are absolutely endless in terms of leadership and successes. But for instance, he has published over 80 technical articles and presentations worldwide and has contributed to many in-practice codes that we use today in construction and design. Some of his involvement includes being the Director of the American Society of Civil Engineers and the President of the American Society of Civil Engineers Geotechnical Institute here in Pittsburgh. Lastly, I would like to cover that Sebastian has been recognized by the American Society of Civil Engineers in Pittsburgh to be the Civil Engineer of the Year in 2020. So I met Sebastian during a talk that he gave in my geotechnical class at the University of Pittsburgh, and I must say, he is one of the most personable engineers you will ever meet, and I am very happy to have him on for this topic. So welcome to the
1: podcast. Sam, how are you? How are things going? Very well, very well. Been working away. How about you? Doing good. Enjoying my summer, doing a lot of cool stuff. But hey, this is one of the coolest things that I have done in the summer, so happy oh, that's to be awesome. here. <laughs> um, I'm happy you're here. So uh, what have you been doing of late? Well, a little bit of the same. I mean, you know, I work for a company that's called American Geotechnical and Environmental Services, and we specialize mostly on transportation projects. So most of the stuff that we do is transportation geotechnics, so it's design and also construction consultation, uh, mostly foundation for bridges, slope stabilization, air retaining structures, things like that. So keeping busy with those kind of projects. Uh, but I have to say right now I'm, I'm working on a pretty cool one in the city of Pittsburgh. We are okay. stabilizing a landslide on Troy Hill uh, and it's right above Penn Brewery and it's been extremely enjoyable because I mean as you know I love the city of Pittsburgh and it's pretty cool when you can work on, on local projects and It is pretty special. I mean, I I came to Pittsburgh 20 years ago with the dream of, you know, learning geotechnical engineering, especially landslide stabilization. And obviously I have done a a lot of stuff in these 20 years, but that August 14th date, which is when I came to this country 20 years ago is coming and being at the top of Troy Hill, fixing a landslide and looking the city from that view, it's pretty special, you know, keeping the 20 years. So That's
0: fantastic.
1: Now, 20 years ago, did you expect to be at the, the level that you are now, looking back? Thank you. Well, I, it sounds like you have me on a very high level, right, since you say it that way. But no, I mean, not, not never on my wildest dreams. So I, I am extremely lucky. Uh, I have been blessed being here and, and seeing how my career has, you know, evolved and all that and, and all the great stuff that I have done. I mean, it's pretty special. I mean, I love my career. I, I truly, I have done... Everything for geotechnical engineering. I have lived my life in function of geotechnical engineering. That's the reason I came here. That's the reason that I'm still in this country. So it's a lot of stuff. So it's nice to see the evolution. I mean, last year I received the Pittsburgh Civil Engineer of the Year Award by the Pittsburgh American Society of Civil Engineers. And I mean, I must admit that it was super special. You know what I'm saying? Because when you are so passionate, for what you love and seeing those kind of recognitions and and also i guess as the time passes and you start having your projects being constructed and become part of the city it's it's pretty cool i know it's a long answer but the answer is yeah it's super cool man and i love every second and of what i have done and i truly hope that i'm blessed with another 20 years or more to continue doing stuff for the city that i learned to love so Thanks, Sebastian. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to start the
0: first segment by addressing what is causing these places all around the world to sink and why it is happening particularly in these areas. And now, I think there are three primary reasons which create sinking cities, and those are mining and tunneling, the seismic activity that we experience through plate tectonics, and groundwater extraction. Now, the mining and tunneling are more of the famously known causes for sinking cities because it is the process that we have witnessed or know someone that has been affected by it. Especially here in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is notoriously known for old mining tunnels causing homes, businesses, bridges, etc. to sink at scary rates. Now, furthermore, with the seismic activity or tectonic plate movements, subduction zones are, I think, the first example that come to my mind and in geology subduction zones are when a landmass is being pushed underneath another landmass now there are also divergent plate boundaries and they are boundaries that move away from each other which cause depressions in the land profile and out of the seismic activity those are the ones that cause sinking cities now, that leaves groundwater extraction as being the primary focus here because it involves extreme humanitarian issues linked to a finite water supply because groundwater is essentially water that builds up in our soil profile over millions of years. It doesn't just happen within the year. It, ha- it takes millions of years for this water to seep into the ground and collectively come together in a mass body. And in many places that we will talk about here in the next segment, groundwater is being extracted at an exponentiated rate compared to the speed at which it can be replenished. And this process is coined as overdraw. So places all around the world heavily rely on groundwater for drinking, manufacturing purposes and industry, agriculture, sanitation, and much more. And it becomes a death stare at day zero. And what is day zero? Day zero is when a community faces insufficient water levels to suffice basic function. So you turn on the tap and nothing comes out. And that's something that doesn't just happen at your house. It happens at every neighbor's house. And day zero is actually a real phenomena that has been prevalent recently within the last couple years. One that stands out is Cape Town, South Africa in 2018, and we will continue to see these other places pop up frequently in years to come, such as London, Beijing, and Cairo that are home to millions and millions of people. They solely focus a majority of their water supply on the consumption of groundwater, and essentially... Government plays a major role because they set the systems that provide water supply and actively know their bounds. They know that their system relies on groundwater extraction. And then you also have to think of system reliability. System reliability plays a major role. I mean, breaking pipes do not help with the overdraw of a finite resource. And that comes back to government. And it comes back to government implementation of monitoring these systems here in Pittsburgh. Within the last couple of years, we had a mainline water break downtown and they didn't know about it. They lost thousands and thousands of gallons of water underneath the city street. And they didn't know until a bus actually fell through the pavement. Nobody would have known. So. It's important to have a government that instills implementation of monitorizing these systems to minimize the amount of loss or the amount of overdraw that we get from these groundwater systems. Now, the government implemented systems are not the only cause of overdraw. We have agriculture. Agriculture plays a major role in the use of water. Actually, the largest percentage of water consumption goes into agriculture. And the way that we use water to grow crops or water livestock, and also the location of these practices plays a major factor in consumption rate. I mean, you don't want to grow alfalfa in the desert, but we do it all over the world. Moving on, we have to look at big businesses. Water is involved in every product known to industry in some portion of the process of creation. I mean, it could go from the ingredients that make that product all the way to the sanitation or the scrubbing that occurs from carbon content or carbon release. Corporations such as like Nestle, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and other beverage producers stand out as forefront water suckers from societies in need. It's extremely prevalent in the news. I mean, just in the past seven decades, Nestle has averaged stealing more than 55 Billion gallons of water from an already deprived Californian society. And that is not the only city that they've stolen from. Places such as Michigan and other states are being vastly affected by these bottling companies. And it's important that we take that into account. And then finally, and which is very controversial yet true, is us the consumers. What we intake and how much we use reflects the rate of overdraw in these aquifers. And this is no kick towards meat eaters, but 1,300 gallons of water go into a singular hamburger from watering the cow itself, the feed for the cow, and all the water it takes to produce the other ingredients like the buns, the cheese, lettuce, tomato slices, and all compounds. Just being aware will help. I mean, our uses greatly reflect our consumption rates, such as the frequency in which we wash our cars how long we shower. In many other cases, everything that we do remotely revolves around water. Ultimately, it falls back on the government because of the educational system that we have not bestowing an environmental consciousness within the members of our society. No one can change and no one can lobby or protest if they're unaware. And that's just how it is. Until we get an educational system that bestows this information to us. Nobody can consciously make a decision that'll help an overdraw. Okay, so now that I have implemented the causation of sinking cities, I would like to move over to Sebastian where he can enlighten us on what is happening in the soil due to the extraction of water and the extraction of soil from overdraw, mining, and tuddling, respectively.
1: All right. All right. So, you know, let me just recap a little bit, right? So we we can talk about different causes, you know, why a city or why something will collapse. So the the first one, as you already mentioned, it will be more like the obvious one, right? Which is, and especially us here in Pittsburgh, we're very used to subsidence. So soil subsidence typically will come from, let's say, extraction of mining. There is plenty of areas around where, you know, we have deep mines. So depending where you are, you can have subsidence and, you know, Another cause is that is typically could be karst. You know, and, and in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of karst, you know, geology and topography, which is dissolution of limestone and dissolution of, of those kind of rocks. That dissolution, sometimes people think that happened during our lifetime, but it's not. It was a long time ago. It has these cavities that got filled with sediments and things like that. And then you have a groundwater table as a result of changes on that groundwater table. So that's kind of where we start tying into the groundwater table and, and what you were mentioning it. Let's say that you change the pattern of the water going or you create a hydraulic gradient because you did excavation or something. Water will always travel between high energy and low energy, right? So once you create a difference in energy and then things move, it's going to wash those fines from those, you know, cavities and those joints and stuff. And that's what's going to develop a lot of cars. So in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of cars, for example, in State College, we have been working for years in University Park Airport, Penn State in State College it's full of cars you know york in pennsylvania and then as you start moving into different kind of states going down you will have all that cars corridor you know plenty of areas even getting all the way to florida also going a lot into into texas and things like that so but again those are different because the voids were there a million years ago they got filled with sediments changes on groundwater table not from where we are going to talk as the main topic today but Just because changes in hydraulic gradients and and different things, they open that. So those two causes, let's say those are very famous and and documented, coal extraction and and karst geology, those are more in the rock, in bedrock, right? So that's nothing to do with soil. It's just the bedrock having these things. Now, then we move into two separate areas that are more related to soil. Mm -hmm. With soil, you have two phenomena. So you have many cities that have been constructed just on lakes, and cities like that Include, for example, Mexico City, which is, you know, one of the the worst. And and that's going to create all kinds of other problems with liquefaction and seismic effects and things like that. But you also have parts of other cities like the place that I'm from, Bogota, Colombia. We also have parts of the cities that were, I mean, Bogota, it's 300 meters, let's say 900 feet clay deposit. It used to be a lake in some areas of the city. And then they basically just fill in the lake. As you fill these places, right, and then you load them because of just regular, consolidation, things are going to move away. So let's just go back a little bit into what consolidation is, because I don't know if everyone is familiar, but my soil mechanics two-minute class will be just <laughs> consolidation is basically a sponge, right? You have a sponge full of water, and then I just squeeze it out, just push load on it, and then the water comes out. So when you put sediments on a lake or something like that, you can create a potential mass that can consolidate, right? Put it load, and then in years that's going to keep moving and moving and moving. We call it in geotech consolidation settlement compared to the other settlement that we call it elastic, which is immediate settlement and is more like a spring. You just have a spring and you press it. That happens a lot on sands, uh, but typically clays and silts and all that, if they are in a loose state, let's say a, a soft state, that is gonna be consolidation. So many cities like Mexico City and, and as I say, Bogota, have a lot of consolidation issues. Now, you know, Mexico City also has another problem, which is the pumping of water. So what happened is you have the ground and let's say by now we talk about, you can have sediments like sand. That's not going to have major sediment issues, but really is these sponges, the clay, the seals, the ones that have a water, a high water content, a lot of water compared to the solids that they have. One of the oldest things that I, I'm sure humankind did is, you know, they make some kind of well and realize that if you open a hole right at some point, the water is going to fill it to a certain level. That's what mm-hmm. we call the water table. So the water table is due to infiltration to the surface water. You have rain, you have different things. But there is always under us uh, some water that is traveling, and it's the groundwater. Again, it goes from high energy to low energy points. So if you, let's say that you are at the top of a mountain, and there is water there, the water is going to infiltrate the ground, and it's going to travel. Thanks to a hydraulic gradient, it's going to go from high energy to low energy. And so, I mean, I don't want to get into super technical stuff. When I was at Pitt, I ended up taking groundwater geology and I also took another class which is groundwater hydrology so by no means I'm an expert on the topic I just know enough to be dangerous but but for today let's just try to keep it super simple so the principle is when you have soils you can define what is called an aquifer and you can define what is an aquitard so an aquifer is basically and my pronunciation may be wrong but again man you have to be patient with me I'm from Colombia so (laughs) An aquifer is basically a layer, let's say sand or something that allows the water to travel. Now, an aquitard is kind of like impervious to water. It's not completely impervious because typically they could be full of water, but it's just the permeability or the hydraulic conductivity is low enough that it doesn't allow for a fast pace. If you have, for example, an aquifer sandwiched by two aquitards, that's what we call a confined aquifer let's say the clay at the top, uh, that's like an unconfined aquifer because it's basically whatever fluctuation is going to happen. Without getting too technical, what happened is if you have an aquifer between two sands of clay, you can have a hydraulic head that is actually above the physical top of the layer. So it's basically you have water under pressure. So keeping in mind that some of the aquifers are like that, they are kind of under pressure. Some are actually just open and they were flowing. Uh, No matter how you do it, I'm sure at some point, somebody opened a hole in the ground they put a pipe or something, they see that it filled to some point. That's what we call the groundwater table. I'm sure also the next idea that somebody had at that point was like, well, if I open a hole and I see water, let's start pumping it out because I can use that water, right? Yeah. If it's not passing next to something really contaminated or something, it's probably one of the best waters that you can find because it passed through sands and it passed through different soils that kind of already did a filtration process for you, Right. right? So, I mean, I'm talking, this is probably centuries ago when somebody realized this. And then you start pumping, and then you start using the water and all that. As everything, you have to always keep in mind what is the recharge of that, right? I mean, that groundwater mm-hmm. table is a regional groundwater table. So depressing, we call depressing, it but it's basically lower that water table. It's going to take time, right? If the recharge is good, then it's going to take a while. I mean, you are going to generate what is called a cone, a cone of depression, which is right where you put the pipe, the water table mm-hmm. is going to go down as a cone, but the far field is going to maintain the level that it had before. If the recharge, the groundwater that is coming to that surrounding is not high enough, you're going to start lowering everything. Not only the area that is right next to a pipe um, but you know, or, or the well, but you are also lowering the radius around. And it's going to, that cone that is depressing now, not only you have the cone, but you are also lowering the water table and doing that. And that's when the problems arise. So our father of geotech, the guy that we owe everything, Carl Terzaghi, was the one that came with the concept of effective stress. An effective stress, most people in, in engineering with a soil mechanic class obviously know what I'm talking about, but it's basically, when you look the stresses in soil, you know, like the loads that they have, you have the load that is just the weight that you have above, right? Just because I have soil above, if I imagine an element, a cube of, of soil, let's say 20 feet below the ground surface, that is gonna have the load that is above just because it's the overburden. But you also in that overboarding, you also have the water table. So because of buoyancy, and now we go with Archimedes and all that, because of buoyancy, the weight that I feel is less than the weight of everything above because the water is kind of coming around and generating hydrostatic pressures. And these hydrostatic pressures kind of lift things, right? So then it's not that bad because it's like, I'm not carrying the entire weight. The water is actually helping me. And and, and everyone knows what I'm talking about because we go into a swimming pool or a bathtub and you know that your weight feels different. So uh, what Terzaghi did is that he called it effective stress and he he found a way which is the unit weight times the height, which is basically the stress, that's the total stress. And then you subtract the the unit weight of water times the height of the water. Let's say that you have an element on the ground and you have a water table here. The moment that you lower the water table, you are by definition, you are increasing the effective stress. So just by that, even though I have not loaded the area, just by that, I'm squeezing water out of the thing. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, when I increase the stress, obviously it's gonna settle, right? It's gonna consolidate. So the more I pump, the more the groundwater table start going down. And as the water goes out, effective stresses go up, soil goes down, Mm -hmm. kind of squeeze out, and then consolidation starts happening. And then that is a massive problem. Now, is that a problem everywhere? Well, it is, I mean, but how much do you see it? So let me just give you an example. Uh, In California, because of all the agricultural work that they have, and and for years, they have been pumping the heck out of the groundwater table, right? right? Now, if you are in a rural area, and you are just pumping out and you don't have a structures around or anything like that, you probably are not going to see it because it's all mm-hmm. relative, right? I mean, it's just right. going to settle uniformly. So there is famous pictures, uh, for example, with like electricity poles or something like that, that right. they mark the years, right? And then anyone that took like a geology class or a soil mechanics class knows what I'm talking about, because the more they pump, right, then the soil goes down, but the poles stay there and then they just mark the years. Now, if I'm talking that in, in the San Fernando area and it's just in the middle of, of agricultural fields, it's fine. I mean, nobody nobody cares. But the moment that I have a house or a structure next to it, then it's going to start mattering. So right. strange enough, my very first job in geotech, it was exactly on this. So let me just tell you a story because it's what's happened to a lot of places like Mexico. And it also happened in Bogota. I mean, I'm sure as any civil engineer in the world, you always, when you're finishing your career, they always appear a friend of a friend that is like hey i have a problem with a property and you know engineering so why don't you come and take a look and don't charge me any money right (laughs) so so this was like a friend of my mom or something like that they have a beautiful house outside bogota in the middle of a very nice area it was just fields right they really just have the house it was nothing around it was a two-story house and of course was not connected to any like aqueduct or anything like that so they put a pipe you know they just basically created a well Mm -hmm. they start pumping the water from the well just for using it on their house so I mean keep in mind that it's a very low volume of water being taken and that's probably why they took so many years to develop so they start doing it other farms or other houses in the area were also doing it so they constructed the house and then they start pumping and one day they realize they have a huge crack on the corner of the house So, you know, they called me to take a look. I was, I don't know, man, I was probably 20 years old, 21 years old, still trying to finish my degree. I was already in geotech, love geotech. So I went there and they showed me and and obviously you don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to realize it's like, all right, well, that corner is the closest to the water well that you have, right? So it's like, it's related. The more you pump that well, the more the soil is going to settle. So then I said, what is the foundation for the house? And they say, well, the foundation of this house is just basically a spread footing, you know, just around yeah. the house with the walls. So I was like, okay, well, again, without any numbers, you start pumping the water there, effective stress increases, it consolidates, and then literally the support that you have below the spread footing start going. Now, it's not uniform because what we talk about when I pump, you know, out of these wells, I develop this cone, this depression mm-hmm. cone. So, you know, when I get it farther from the well, I'm not going to have that much settlement so part of the house and spread footing on a slab foundation is not seeing any movement while the one that is closed it's feeling all this and then they asked me what do you think is the solution and I was like well I mean understanding that is because of the pumping you increase the effective stresses basically your spread footing now is no good right you have to go to that corner and do some piles so the guy was like okay well let's see so I, I just remember taking a literally a napkin and I started just driving with like a Sharpie or something. And I say, well, I will do like some kind of footing. And he said, well, what dimensions? And I like, I don't know, man, probably a few meters this way, a few meters this way, try to put like six piles. How deep were the piles? I was like 20 feet, 30 feet. Like, I mean, the first thing as a geotech engineer that you know is you never do anything without a boring. Because if you don't do a boring, a test boring, you don't yeah. know what is there, right? I mean, it's right. like, if you don't get samples and all that, we make a whole career out of that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know, I, I don't have any boring, but the, I give him some dimensions. Next thing that I know is he called me two days and he was like, "Can you come here? I think we have a problem. We start doing your files, and we have a problem." And I was like, "How the hell do you start doing my files, right? I, I just give you like preliminary stuff." So what happened is, you know, this was a problem that was kind of common in that area for different residential things. So what this particular person was having as an issue, everyone in the region with uh, a well were experiencing. But the, the reason they say problems when they excavated, when they opened around the footing they found a gap that was about a foot between the soil and the spread footing. so And, and that to me was mind-blowing. So what happened is the soil right next to that corner already moved down a whole foot just because of consolidation settlement, just because of having a higher vertical effective stress. Now, that did not happen on the other side of the house. And since mm-hmm. it was like a spread footing, basically that half of the house or the end of the of the house was literally cantilevered. So the solution in that case you know, was very simple because then we just put the piles. I mean, they basically put the piles, they backfill it with grout or, or with concrete, and then they connect it to the bread pudding. It was a very successful solution, you know, and then the guy that was doing the pile, I think, started copying the solution to do it in every other house in the region. But, but it illustrates as a small scale the problem. So now let's, let's blow this from here and let's go to like Mexico City. So what is happening is exactly that. You have all these foundations, right? And Obviously, if you know that you are in an area that is prone to have settlement like that, you don't go with just spread footing. You try to go with piles, some kind of deep foundation element that is getting the resistance from below. But that brings all kinds of issues because, for example, in Mexico, it's so thick that you are not going to be able to take your pile to bedrock. You probably are going to still be in some kind of more competent soil. That is what we call still a friction pile. If the pile goes to rock, it's an embering pile and it cannot move anymore. But if it's still kind of floating on that mass, It's just getting resistance as friction, which is pretty good compared to a spread footing, but you are still not something that goes to something rigid. So you have in Mexico the fact that you also start building on lakes and things like that. So that's one settlement. But you also have the fact that you start pumping water out. The more you pump, the more it increases, and then you start having all this. But even on on big buildings, now you start having settlement. And even if you are on piles, you are still kind of bringing the piles down, and everything is kind of coming down. It's a a big problem, as I said, it's not only the fact that you're pumping out, it's also the fact that you construct on ancient lakes and things like that. It's interesting, even the place that I grew up, it's in Bogota, it's a huge city, man, it's like 8 million people. And so it's a city with a lot of buildings and a lot of density and, and stuff like that. So the building that I live on, I was actually lucky enough that my dad was involved in some part of the construction. So I have the chance to go and see it during construction. It's a five story building. Uh, it was all done on piles. I remember being there when they dropped the piles. And every time that I go, it amazed me because the building in itself has been sinking, right? But it has been sinking to a very small rate. Uh, nobody's pumping water out of there because this is like the middle of the city. So it's just due to the load and these piles. But every time that I go, you can see like what was the entrance of the building has moved down and and you can see it with the sidewalk, right? Yeah. So it's like some areas are are tolerant, tolerant in the sense that if you look that building it's about 30 years old and if it moves one inch on 30 years every structure can can take it now right. the big problem is also if it's differential settlement and, and we call differential settlement which is not uniform it is an issue mm-hmm. the house that i was telling you as the example my first engineering job it is an issue because part is not moving one side of the house is not moving the other one is moving so now i have what is called angular distortion because it's basically like an angle coming down in that case, it's an issue. But if the entire building moves down uniformly, then there is no issue. Yeah. So, I mean, there is plenty of examples around the world of cities that have these kind of things. And it's not ideal. You also have it on, for example, the airport in Osaka. They basically just created the airport and more land. So the right. whole runway was kind of created in the ocean and just put in field and, and things like that. That thing has been moving forever, you know, because constructed on things that were not initially doable. And I think mm-hmm. as we move with engineering, there is more and more techniques. But even if you put a lot of technology and injections and all that, there is so many variables the control that, that you can result on, on moving. But yeah, back. you're totally
0: right. Not only the impact on our buildings, our bridges, you know, the, our transportation systems, our homes, but also our utilities. Just one issue with a water line to your house, you know, through a parallel isn't bad, but solving mm-hmm. thousands of parallels is, is, is a big issue. It could be a block It could be half a city. It could be a whole city. You know, it's kind
1: of, it can compound on itself pretty fast. It's a big snowball effect, I think. You know, from the point of view of geotech alone, kind of realize that you cannot, you should not be pumping water for consumption right where you live, beyond any kind of contamination. But just, it's never Mm -hmm. a good idea because settlement is going to happen. The other part that is sometimes hard to really understand is the time rate of these movements. So what, what happened too is consolidation takes time the the settlement that i'm gonna get is not gonna happen in a day you know what i'm saying i mean even mm. if i put all the load today it may take three years ten years to develop so right by the time that you realize you may not be pumping anymore but mm. the damage was done
0: well thanks sebastian that was that was very insightful you know we have to take a short break but when we return we will give you examples of cities that are actually sinking so stay tuned woke we'll talk podcast would like to acknowledge tree cup tea for their delicious organic tea and their cause for reforesting the island of haiti at the start of 2006 haiti was stripped of 80 percent of their forest due to agricultural malpractice because of their partnership with haiti friends a nonprofit tree planting organization tree cup tea's goal is to fully restore haiti's forest by 2030 and continue to support reforestation worldwide Tree cup tea sells four different flavors of tea that can be bought by the 12 pack and delivered right to your door with every purchase, 12 trees will be planted in Haiti, along with a supply of 12 complimentary maple tree seeds that can be planted in your very own neighborhood. To learn more about their cause, operations, and tea, go to www.treecuptea.com or follow Woke Talk Podcast on social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to find Tree Cup Tea's official link. Just remember, Tree Cup Tea uses your contributions of buying their tea to plant a beautiful tree. All right, we are back here at Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. I have with me PhD and professional geotechnical engineer Sebastian Lobo Guerrero. Another major city that fits the bill for this episode is Mexico City, and we mentioned it a little bit before. So, in most parts of Mexico City, the land is sinking at a nasty rate of nine inches per year and could continue to increase in the next coming decades. So, since the Spaniards took over the Aztec civilization there, they drained the lake the Aztecs were built upon and built a city that now houses more than 22 million people. Now that the depression where Lake Texcoco once filled is now occupied by cities, and it poses two major problems. The first problem is major floods, and a second and saddening problem is clean drinking water. So Mexico City primarily pumps water from groundwater deposits that accounts for up to about 50% of their water supply, which is pretty astronomical. 50% of the water supply for 22 million people is is a ludicrous number, which directly correlates to the average sinking rate that Mexico City experiences. So NASA's global positioning systems and leveling data have shown that the sinking has increased from 8 centimeters in the early 1900s to 9 inches a year in the present day. And this rate is projected to exponentiate over the next 150 years. And that's what you were talking about is, you know, consolidation over time does tend to exponentiate. It's not going to happen within the first day. It's going to take months, years, you know, decades. So the continued sinking is affecting the infrastructure of the city. You know, Mexico City is projected to sink up to 65 feet in the next 150 years. And if the rate of groundwater extraction isn't severely lessened, that's you know, what do you think is going to happen in Mexico City, Sebastian?
1: Very unfortunate. And, and the numbers that you obviously are throwing are insane, right? I mean, I'm not saying that they are wrong. It's just that it's, it's insane to try to understand those magnitudes. And and it's also kind of insane what I was saying before, you know, that most governments and, and, and most places have learned that it's never a good thing to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still very hard to regulate, right? So especially, I mean, you're not pumping water in downtown, right? You're doing it on the outskirts of the city and different areas. But even though we know that it's bad and it's nothing new, it is still happening. So Mm -hmm. that is kind of sad to realize. But the other part then is how you fix it, right? Because that's what we are here for. And I mean, the civil engineers, that's our purpose always. So what do you do? I mean, it's not easy to put the water back, you know, into the soil. Mm -hmm. And we don't really do anti-consolidation trying to inject water and pumping it into the clay that it doesn't work that way. I mean, there is different things that have been done in different areas of the world trying to kind of alleviate things. Uh, you can try to do some kind of injections of different materials like grout or, or, or different more fluid mixes that you can put under foundations. And again, it, it, it for me, it all goes back to that first example that I was telling you because that's yeah. what we did. We put a house and then we end up putting concrete under. So yeah. you can try to do that for specific foundations, but that's a lot of money and that's similar to what you see people sometimes fixing their basements or their driveways or something that they just try to inject grout under and, and, and try to feel the support and all that but that's not going to work on a big scale that works on a smaller scale retrofits as we call them for bigger structures, work i mean they have a proven record you know i mean basically you can hog you can you can go to different structures and try to do this i was in sao paulo brazil about two years ago they invited me for a keynote lecture there that i gave and I always say that the best part of that Congress was not the part that I gave, but it was so much that I learned just from seeing the Brazilian engineers, all the imagination they have for things. And mm-hmm. But anyway, they were showing a, a building in one place that I don't remember exactly what city it was, but they have a problem like this. I don't know if it was exactly because of pumping water or just consolidation, but it was basically trying to retrofit a massive building, just doing a lot of micropiles and, and drill shafts and all kinds of things. Obviously it costs a 14, you know what I'm saying I mean it has oh, yeah. to be it has to be a heck of a building and, and extremely important that you want to invest these kind of foundations. I mean we definitely can do it as geotech engineers because for us is basically trying to go deeper and find something better, but it's not simple. So are you gonna do it for every single building on this series and then when you start saying 65 feet it's like nothing is gonna resist 65 feet. No. now to also tell you what happens sometimes with these problems, So I go back to my first example, the one that I did when I was not an engineer. So I designed these piles or design on a napkin and just from guts without any number, right? The person ended up constructing that and stabilize one corner of the house. Then something like 10 years later, I think I run into the person that we have in common. I don't exactly, but then basically, I basically just think and say, what ended up happening with that property? So what ended up happening with that property is that they stabilized that corner and it was fine. It never moved again. But then the rest of the house start moving down because of what we say, that the cone takes time to develop. So he was basically like, the corner that was in problem, we fixed it so well based on your recommendations that now it's not moving, but the rest of the house now is moving and it cracks again. <laughs> so it's like oh, it no. was too good of a solution. So they end up going and implementing it all the, on all the four corners of the house and it cost them a lot. But I guess my point again, extrapolating from the small example to the big city thing is, you also have these phenomena. I mean, it's going to vary and, and it's it's a nightmare. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to be easy and it's not going to be cheap and it's not going to be sustainable. I guess that will be the word that I would say. So,
0: right.
1: so I don't know, we'll see. I mean, I'm sure a lot of buildings are not going to, you know, have good luck and then probably they're going to end up having, now they're gonna have many issues. We see that in Bogota. Obviously there is massive problems in some of the buildings on this part of the Lago, the lake that I was telling you about, construction mm-hmm. on top of that lake. And again, it may not be because of lowering the groundwater table, but just because of consolidation settlement. Some buildings probably have done retrofits, but the majority have not. And, and, and when you go on the street, you see all these people with means will not tolerate the risk, but people with no means are going to tolerate the risk because they have no other option. Right. So, you know, we're talking Mexico City, you know, the, being Mexico in the sense of a very wide range, you have one of the richest man in the world living there, but you also have very poor area so right. you tell me who is the one that is going to do the retrofits and who is the one that is going to just let the building go to to rubble. so yeah so I mean mm-hmm. it, it, it's going to be complicated but you know unfortunately
0: right. the water involved and also the just the aspect of the sinking cities is a, is a humanitarian crisis it's not and just going to some of these conferences like you were just talking about got to put the best minds in the world together to get this stuff done <laughs> absolutely yeah. So what other places stand out to you that you've come across
1: in the civil engineering community? You have the Osaka runway, uh, and there is like different areas, but I don't know if it's, you know, more like isolated and and because different reasons. Now, you also hear the term sinking cities, but it's all relative in the sense of, there is not only because of the groundwater i mean i'm not saying that you know obviously we have established that pumping the groundwater on a city it's a bad idea stay away right. from that right, right. <laughs> but we cannot blame it for everything so there is also the right. regular settlement of loading for constructing on lakes but you also have different effects so for example the you also have the flooding and Venice yep. is one that comes to my mind because uh, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of consolidation settlement a little bit but it's also just the sea level, you know, moving up. So right. there's plenty of cities that are seeing that because of global warming, either you believe it or not, it's happening. So, you know, you, you will see that a lot of the cities will have those problems. Nothing with groundwater table, nothing Nothing with that. There is also the effects of liquefaction. We are locked in Pittsburgh. We don't have any, any of that. There are areas, for example like in Colombia, that we do have a lot of seismic, but in certain areas of the country, we don't have the saturated loose soil deposits. So liquefaction is not an issue. Other areas it is. There is plenty of areas in the world that changes, that you know that have the sand deposits and, and can have liquefaction. So I would say flooding and liquefaction are other two causes, beyond the just lowering the groundwater table, beyond just the load, and then the always one that we say with coal extraction and, you know, and karst. New Orleans, mm-hmm. I think you, you know, at some point, you were mentioning it before that that New Orleans also have like issues. Yeah. I mean, a lot of coastal cities mm-hmm. are going to have issues. And some of these can have like two or three together. I mean, I'm just thinking, man, poor Mexico. Everyone in Mexico probably is hating our podcast because we're criticizing. To them. <laughs> but it's, just,
0: it's true. It's... They seem
1: to have a lot of pro- problems. I mean, when yep. you go to the, you know, like when you go to like Playa del Carmen, that area or area in Cancun, you can go to what they call the cenotes which is in these limestone, they have all these karst filters and things like that. So obviously, if you are have a city, I mean, Cancun is not yet to a point that is like massive skyscraper and stuff like that. But if you start constructing all this, and you can have the potential for collapsing due to karst, but then you are next to an ocean that may be changing. You can have mm-hmm. two or three of these combined. It's a very complex problem with a lot of variables. And I think in the past, humankind has not really been very careful on that. And we are paying the price now, right?
0: It's always a work in progress and everything's always a
1: dynamic issue. Uh, It's just how we can simplify it to get to an appropriate solution. For some reason the good places of the city are on the worst soils and the poor parts of the city are on the best soils because they tend to be kind of towards the mountain where the bedrock start being exposed. Mm -hmm. So sometimes different conditions you know because of that you can have certain big structures where the money is in the worst soils possible You know, while the lower structures, the lower building, the lower houses are in in areas that are very, I mean, it's such a complex thing on on, on how humankind develop around places and, you know, we create cities. Right. Now, something that we have not really talked also is a lot of the cities and a lot of the places that we have mentioned, they are also developing country. You know what I'm saying? And and, I mean, I, I know, and I apologize if anyone takes my terminology of developing country in the wrong way. But what I'm saying is there is all kind of other things associated with these countries in terms of corruption, in terms of other needs and things like that, that make mm-hmm. it even more challenging. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's 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 extremely complex solutions that they are not, I mean, something beautiful in the States is that we have a really good government here and a really good system that there is a lot of people in power with many good ideas and good thinking and things tend to get done and get, you know, they are thought through the process, you know, and, and people in power have the capability to take decisions. Unfortunately, there are many countries in South America and Central America that don't have the same. And again, I, I don't want to criticize anyone in particular, but we know that. I mean, I am a citizen from also from one of these countries. I mean, I, I grew up in Colombia and I know the challenges that we also have.
0: Oh, yeah, Sebastian, you're absolutely right. But the next real question is, how do we solve these scary issues that pop up all over the world from groundwater, seismic activity, mining and tunneling and liquefaction? You'll find out after the break. Woke Talk Podcast would like to promote elite graphics for their screen printing, embroidery, decals, graphic design, and much more. They also showcase their own clothing line on their website and currently provide free shipping for purchases over $50. Now, I've personally had them print custom t-shirts for me in the past, and I was more than pleased with results and customer service. So with that being said, Woke Talk Podcast will utilize elite graphics in the future to make all of our merchandise. So if you're interested in getting some custom clothing, decals, or signs made, check out Elite Graphics at www.elitegraphics.org, and you can also find them on social media such as Facebook and Instagram, where you can see their past products, merchandise drops, and promotions. So contact Elite Graphics today, and don't just settle on being average. Be Elite. Hello everyone and welcome back to the last segment on sinking cities. And for this last leg of the episode, we will be focusing on the engineering and environmental practices you can implement to fix and mitigate subsidence from groundwater overdraw, mining, tunneling, and seismic activity. So I would like to start out with Sebastian where he can elaborate in ways we can fix and prevent infrastructure failure in these sinking cities.
1: Yeah, it's not easy. You know, when we go back to let's say the coal, the cars, there is a lot of stuff that you can do in terms of backfilling, you know, like mm-hmm. you can inject, you can grout. We do it all the time around this area that we go through mines and we do grouting plants, which is basically once you identify the, where the seam is, that where the coal was extracted, whatever the spacing is, you can just go and do like these injections of grout. And then you mm-hmm. basically just fill the voids. With cars, we do something similar. Cars is a little more complex because when you have a mine, it's a very delineated volume that it was extracted mm-hmm. when it's scarce you have all these paths that is hard but you can still try to put injections and still try to backfill things so those are probably on the spectrum those are probably the easy consolidation it's it's, it's hard like what we say about lowering the ground at the table it's probably mm-hmm. retrofits things like that but then you get into the part that is more philosophical i mean what do you do with some levels of let's say the seas coming up and putting some cities down. I mean, that's not something that we're going to fix as geotech engineers, you know, or things of that nature. With liquefaction, definitely, there is a lot of things go- that have been developed in the past 23 years. I'm a huge fan of ground improvement. There is plenty of companies. We're in Pittsburgh, that we have great companies like Menard, and but there you also have Keller and many other people in the area that you can do what is called like ram aggregate piers or stone columns. Uh, they provide drainage pads that all this excess pore water pressure can dissipate. And basically, there is many techniques that, as geotech engineers, we have developed to provide ground improvement and decrease the chances of liquefactions. Well said. These
0: people need to realize that there is hope for building a resilient infrastructure to maintain not only their homesteads, but also their livelihoods. I'm very glad that we as engineers can provide that for them. But now I wanted to circle back on the causation points that I made in segment one and explain some ways in which we can environmentally fix or slow a lot of these sinking cities. So first and foremost, changing the way that we get our water. Yes, it is a government implemented and funded system, but it comes from taxpayers' money. We need to invoke change in our government to not think about today's budget, but think about the budget in the long term. I mean, this phenomena causes millions and billions of dollars in infrastructure remediation. It's not just a house-by-house case. This is like solar panels. It's upfront cost, but for the right reasons that can save you lots in the long term. If you can effectively implement water distribution systems and stronger infrastructure to the change in the soil profile, yes, it will be expensive today, but you'll be so much better off in the long run having a water supply that is broken down into multiple sources such as rainwater capture, surface water, groundwater, and desalinization is the key for the future. You need to have a system in which taps into multiple pools rather than a singular pool. Think about that. Yes, you're still pulling from groundwater, but imagine a system in which, okay, we understand the overdraw. We understand how much water is coming from these sources. So if you start to witness or know the trends of the subsidence effect, then you turn off the valve to the groundwater supply, then redistribute your systems in which it still can properly feed your society. But I wanted to talk about this and the future of providing water for a growing population with day zero like Cairo, London, Mexico City, uh, all these sinking cities is desalinization. Yes, it might be expensive now, but so were computers when they first came out. A learning curve and a means of providing a basic human right to water will drive the price of desalinization to where it is affordable for every sinking city to take advantage of. Now, let me explain desalinization. Desalinization is literally the process by which you remove the salt from the salt water, and make fresh water. There are multiple ways in which you can do this, but ultimately it is the future to ensure humanity's existence. So fixing the way that we do agriculture, then, is another huge point to make. Agriculture consists of 70% of the amount of water consumed in a calendar year. So implementing a change in practice that reduces the amount of water needed, or water lost, In the process is key to decreasing the water footprint of these farmers. Now, I'll just throw an interesting fact at you, and that is that 95% of the world's farmers use the most wasteful tactic of water usage, and that is flooding the fields. If we can manipulate the way that we do agriculture, then we can possibly shrink our water footprint and yet still produce a yield crop that is just the same. But not only that, also where we plant our crops. A lot of the world's crops are produced in the most arid climates on Earth. We literally grow alfalfa in deserts. We grow rice in deserts. A huge portion of our rice crop that comes from China literally comes in the most arid portions of China. But nothing will change until we change the way we value water. If we value water a lot differently, it will then become less economical to be planting these crops in arid regions, and it will be more economical to plant crops in more environmentally viable situations rather than in deserts. And then circling to the big business portion that I had in, the, in segment one, Boycotting water bottling companies is something we should strive for as well. So as stated in our previous podcast on small businesses, Nestle and Coca-Cola, Aquafina, and PepsiCo are corporate America. And corporate America does not care about whether or not your tap has water. What does corporate America care about? That is profits. They can only care about their next quarter these companies they don't sell you water to begin with they sell you their plastic bottles and their brand name it is pretty much theft of your money at this point and your humanitarian right to access water i mean supporting these major bottling companies will allow them to continue to take water from our fellow neighbors look what's happening in california it's been seven decades of continuous stealing from Californian neighborhoods that Nestle has been doing, and nothing has been done about it. The reason why nothing has been done is because their pocketbooks have not been hurt. Until their pocketbooks are hurt, nothing is going to happen. And then, lastly, this is huge, and, and this was my last point in segment one, and that's education. Education is such a big factor for the rate of consumption by humans and how we use our water in our industries. Teaching that water is a vital resource in our everyday functions and how much it takes to do those functions is so important. Once we start to get the proper knowledge into our societal members, these societal members then go on to work in government. And then whenever they're more knowledgeable in government, about the vitalization of water, then they start to implement that in their bills. So finally, knowing what products that house different water footprints is vital to the future of our consumption. I talked about a burger before, so I'll talk about something a little less controversial in terms of food. How about take a cotton t-shirt? A cotton t-shirt utilizes 2,500 liters of water. Whereas a bamboo fabric t-shirt needs extremely, extremely less water. Cotton is a very high water consumed resource. Being environmentally conscious is a major staple in decreasing overconsumption of water. It will lead to better decision making in which we can then combat the overdraw of these underground aquifers. This environmental consciousness can carry into our business models of the future and then also propel a green movement of sustaining water for our future generations. See, it doesn't also just pertain to the consumer. It doesn't pertain to the government. It also pertains to our big businesses. If we start to incorporate a movement of water-saving culture, their culture will change as well so then they can still continue to profit the bottom line is water has a value developing a sense of value for water will stop sinking cities and keep our future generations from not only having a dry tap but prevent them from catastrophic infrastructure failures and life-threatening events thank you i really appreciate you being on it was it was a lot of fun
1: no no thank you very much (laughs) i mean thanks for the invitation obviously always talking to you is fun and i mean i you know i have So the podcast and i think what you guys are doing it's awesome in terms of the content that you're generating and the new angle that you're trying to put Uh, i mean we know that it's a market that is getting saturated with a lot of podcasts and stuff but but i think it's important that you definitely bring something new on the table and kind of like a new angle and the audience that you're trying to 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 get so obviously i'm super excited of being part of this and you know very thankful for the invitation
0: that is all for this episode of woke talk podcast Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest star Sebastian for sharing his wealth of geotechnical knowledge and his vast professional experience with all of you. We hope you take away important information in regards to what is happening in these sinking cities, why it is happening, and what we can do to fix and mitigate the effects of groundwater overconsumption. Woke Talk Podcast would also love to encourage you to invoke change in our society and voice your concerns. We need leaders to protect our infrastructure, our environment, and resources necessary for the survival of future generations. Just remember, change does start with you. So thank you all for listening to Woke Talk Podcast. I am your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay woke. Woke Talk Podcast would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast, along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.